0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3.
1: Time now to turn our attention to the United States.
2: Yes, indeed. COVID 19 Omicron cases are finally seeing a decline in parts of the country. Going to be taking a look at developments on that front.
1: Uh, Looks like the United States also has opposed plans to strengthen the World Health Organization.
2: And Japan and the U.S. have vowed for more defense cooperation to counter China's growing threat.
1: Let's uh, catch up with the Straits Times US Bureau Chief Nirmal Ghosh. Nirmal, let's start off with those uh, Omicron cases in the United States. It has started to fall nationally. So this does signal that the Omicron fuel spike has infected tens of millions of Americans and it could have possibly reached its peak. What are your thoughts? I mean, does this really suggest that the threat has passed and would the Omicron mark the transition of the coronavirus from pandemic to endemic? This is a question we're all
0: asking. Good morning. Well, the threat has not passed. Even as we speak, I hear from friends that have got COVID or are just recovering from COVID at some stage or the other. Now, through last week, the country was averaging about 720,000 new cases a day, which was down 7% from the previous week. So down, but only 7% down, which is not very much. Yet, if that downward trend continues at that rate, that would be a good steep decline. It will probably be another week before we know that for certain. Also, new COVID hospital admissions have leveled off. But the U.S. is still logging more cases per day than in any previous wave. It's also testing much more, by the way. So the states that were the worst affected early on have peaked and are declining, like New York, Rhode Island, Connecticut. But some other states continue to see increases, and many hospitals remain full and deaths continue to go up at more than 2,000 a day. So again, the threat has not passed, but there is some hope it will soon, as predicted. As for the second point, yes, that is the theory, and it is a logical and seductive theory. Data shows the Omicron variant now accounts for nearly 100% of new COVID cases here. But hospitalization and mortality still depends on the rate of vaccination or degree of immunity in the general population and there is still pushback against vaccine and mask mandates and so forth. So while, as you said, Omicron does perhaps mark that transition from pandemic to endemic, there is no indication yet that we as a society, here and elsewhere, are ready or able to accept that. Again, the threat has not passed, yet there is some return to optimism given this decline in case numbers.
2: Something else making headlines, Nirmal, is the United States resisting proposals for the World Health Organization to make the agency more independent, as the government, of course, has concerns about the WHO's ability to confront future threats, including those from China. Talk to us about the significance of this proposal and, of course, the expected impact of the U.S.'s push for the creation of a separate fund, which is directly controlled by donors, on the organization.
0: Right. So this proposal is part of a broader reform process spurred by the pandemic. It's been put forward by the WHO Working Group on Permanent Funding, and it would increase each member state's annual permanent contribution. But the U.S. government opposes this because it has concerns about the WHO's ability to respond to threats. There is generally seen to be a need for reform as the WHO relies on voluntary funding from member states and also charities like the Melinda Gates Foundation And this is seen as compromising the WHO's scope for criticising member states or donors when things go wrong. It raises all kinds of integrity issues. And now we have this idea of a separate fund directly controlled by donors to respond to health emergencies. The U.S. sees this as a strategic necessity because the pandemic has been such a disruptor, not just a public health issue, but a political one as well. So it's about stability and, in fact, national security. So the U.S. wants its own eyes on the ground and the ability to mobilize quickly independently of the WHO and independent of what the WHO's big donors like China, for example, want. It is quite possible for these two institutions, the WHO and a new organization, to function in parallel or even in tandem. Of course, there is a risk that the WHO itself is somewhat undermined. But that is the nature of reform to change long entrenched status quo that may not be well adapted to new threats at the intersection of geopolitics and public health. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode.
1: We're on the line this morning with Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief for the Straits Times. Nirmal, in a virtual meeting between President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Fumio Kishida last Friday, the United States and Japan have vowed to push back against China's efforts to change the status quo in the indo-pacific an agreement seen as a sign of tokyo's growing disquiet with beijing's increasing assertiveness in disputed waters normal i suppose let's talk about friday's meeting what kind of breakdown can you give us what kind of opportunities would have been presented to the two countries um, amid increasing alignment on concerns of china
0: and how much of a threat would this relationship pose to china Well, it was a 90-minute meeting and there was an alignment on Japan's part with the United States, on Russia and on China, which was important for the U.S. at this stage. President Biden will visit Japan in late spring for a second in-person meeting of leaders of the Quad, the regional security group which comprises India, Australia, Japan and the United States. Prime Minister Kishida also indicated that the security environment in Northeast Asia demands that Japan step up. And to that end, he mentioned Japan's 8% increase in its defense and security supplemental budget, which is unprecedented. Certainly, the tension over Taiwan lies in the background of all this. So, they also announced the inauguration of a new economic forum, the so called 2 plus 2, which will see Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo speaking and meeting with their counterparts. And the focus of that. It would be technology and supply chains. A senior administration official here told us there was agreement that a close partnership between Japan and the United States was going to be essential going forward across the board, whether it's in semiconductors or in energy. There was also apparently lots of discussion about green innovation and the need to continue to push forward on initiatives announced at COP26, the climate conference, more generally. That's where opportunities lie for closer cooperation. How much of a threat to China? Well, this is a long-standing alliance, so there's nothing new about that. But giving it a more strategic edge would limit China's space, not dramatically, but if the cooperation is in fact deepened and that is sustained, then over a period of time, yes.
2: Now, Norma, last Friday, the U.S. government announced that it would suspend 44 China-bound flights from the U.S. by four Chinese carriers. And this was in response to the Chinese government's decision to suspend some U.S. carrier flights over COVID-19 concerns. To what extent would you say it is right to say that U.S. airlines in the Chinese market were unfairly treated by China? Also, how would the suspension of these flights further strain the relationship between the two superpowers?
0: Well, of course, that's arguable. China claims it applied the same standards to the American airlines. it suspended as it does to all. China called the U.S. move very unreasonable and said we urge the U.S. side to stop disrupting and restricting normal passenger flights by Chinese airlines. While here in the U.S., Airlines for America, which is a trade group representing three of the affected U.S. airlines, said it supported Washington's action to ensure the, quote, fair treatment of U.S. airlines in the Chinese market, unquote. It said China's suspension of the flights, the 44 flights, was adverse to the public interest and warranted proportionate remedial action, and that China's unilateral actions against the U.S. carriers were inconsistent with their bilateral agreement. So seeing it through an American lens, this is more of a tit-for-tat over market access than a health issue out here.
1: the Biden administration officials have been talking with Qatar about possibly supplying Europe with liquefied natural gas if a Russian invasion of Ukraine leads to shortages. Uh, How critical will this shift to LNG be for European countries involved in buying gas from Russia? And how realistic will this contingency plan be since three quarters of Qatar's fuel is currently sold
0: to energy poor Asian countries such as Japan and South Korea? Well, we don't exactly know yet. This is very critical because the European Union depends on Russia for about one-third of its gas supplies. And U.S. sanctions over any conflict will disrupt that supply. Now, Qatar already supplies LNG to Europe. Almost three-quarters of the European Union's imports of natural gas come from Russia, 41 percent, Norway at 16 percent, Algeria at 8 percent, and Qatar at 5 percent. How much Qatar can up its production depends on how much Europe may need, of course, and we don't have the exact answer to that yet, as this is still being discussed. However, this past year, Qatar has been expanding its LNG production significantly, and certainly it will be able to meet some of the the new demand and uh, service its regular markets.
2: Thanks very much for that, Nirmal. We've been speaking with Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief at The Straits Times. We'll catch up with you again next week, Nirmal.
0: The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.